Today we are diving headfirst into two hurricanes, a Dahlia that rapidly hit Florida and the electric vehicle hurricane that is taking small towns in South Carolina by storm. Let's get into it. fourth episode of the Magnifying Glass podcast. I'm your host, Elena Moore, and today with me is my co-host, Liam Ford. On last week's episode, we discussed uh, Ukraine and how you may be paying for their elections. Liam was not able to join us because he was busy wedging himself in the eye of Hurricane Adalia in Florida, as Liam tends to do. Similarly, I have situated myself in the eye of the EV hurricane that is hitting Blythewood, South Carolina at breakneck speed and doesn't seem to be letting up anytime soon. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get into it. Liam, how about you go ahead and give us what you have been covering with Adalia? Yes, and uh, apologies to everybody for not being able to make the last episode, uh, but I was... I, I wouldn't say fighting for my life um, with the hurricane, but I was definitely uh, in no condition to be uh, to be recording. You would have heard a lot of wind in the background if I'd, if I'd hopped on that episode. Um, but yes, so about 5 a.m. Uh, on August 30th, when Adalia was approaching Florida, I decided, probably ill-advisedly so, uh, that I was going to go try and get a closer look at the storm. Uh, I live in north-central Florida, in the Gainesville area, so... It was about a 50, uh, maybe a 60 mile trek for me to put myself right around um, ground zero where the storm was going to be making landfall. One of the interesting things about Adalia though was that although the storm started off very slow, uh, kind of meandered around off the coast of Mex- uh, of, of Central America for a few days, um, right before it made landfall or as it was approaching making landfall, uh, it rapidly intensified. And so by the time it went from a category one to a category four storm within a matter of hours. And so as anybody here in the Southeast knows, uh, the way that you approach a category four storm versus the way you approach a category one storm is very different. Um, So I was a little bit nervous about the situation I was putting myself in, but Elena uh, and some other friends had asked for some on the ground footage of what the hurricane was doing and what pe- how people were responding and, and how bad the weather was and, and everything like that. So I was always going to answer the call of duty and, and put myself in harm's way for that. Um, so it was, it was interesting to on the drive out there because this whole way, it's very windy, but nothing out of the ordinary. And surprisingly, and this is probably about 6 a.m., and I'm within uh, 35, 40 miles of where the hurricane made landfall, still making my way west, the, the hurricane was still fairly dry. And for, again, anybody who knows that much about hurricanes, in the northern hemisphere, the east side of the eye is generally considered the stronger part of the storm. And so it was very strange to me that I was within probably 40 miles, 40, 50 miles of the eye at this point, and still just really bands of rain. It's still, it was more like I was, you know, 400 miles away um, from the center of a hurricane rather than 40 miles. So, uh, uh, you know, this continued as I, as I progressed further west. Um, and again, all, all through the way, through Fanning Springs, Old Town, uh, out US-19, which is kind of the back road to Tallahassee, um, you, you, had, you had power in all the gas stations that I passed, all the street lights were still on, uh, all the street lights were still on, until I hit uh, Cross City, which is one town down from Perry, which Perry, is, I'm sure you've seen in the news, 
just got absolutely run over by the eye wall of uh, Adelia. So uh, whenever I got to Cross City is when I f saw the first Transformers blow, started to lose power, and the wind was definitely starting to reach hurricane force uh, at that point. Uh, so cross, cross through Cross City um, and continued up towards, towards Perry. And my goal the whole trip was really to try and get as close to the coast as possible. I was going to try and use my drone to shoot some um, immediate aftermath of the storm as soon as the storm had cleared. <clears throat> so the, the plan was to get to, to Steenhatchee. So continuing up, uh, there's a little town called Tenile, uh, about halfway between Perry and Cross City. Uh, and that's where you, you make a left-hand turn to head down towards Steenhatchee. I tried to make it down there uh, about 7, 7.15, about 30 minutes before the hurricane made landfall in Keaton Beach. Um, and, and I ran into a number of trees. And again, my car was not equipped to handle any off-roading, especially in the middle of a hurricane. So I was forced to turn back and, and set up at the, the gas station on US-19 in Tenile about... 10, 12 miles outside of Perry and about uh, 15 to 20 miles from where the, the storm made landfall at, at 7.45 that morning. And while I was sitting there recording, uh, taking some of the shots you're seeing on your screen now, uh, there's another storm chaser there uh, with, a, with his tripod set up and we were, you know, we were discussing you know, what we thought the winds were, uh, how we expected the storm to progress over the next hour or so. All the while, the same pattern of dry wind in ban with bands of rain occasionally coming through had continued. Again, we're now within 15 miles of the eye wall of this storm on the east side. Very unusual storm. This, th this storm from um, about three hours before landfall uh, started to go through a, a process of uh, eye wall reformation. And so what that means is that the, the hurricane generally drops one ranking in the category system whenever it goes through an eyewall reformation system or reformation process. <clears throat> so if it's a category three, it'll drop to a category two. If it's a category four, as Adalia was just before uh, dawn on the 30th, uh, you kind of expect it to drop to a category three, which is exactly what uh, all of the weather services had Adalia making landfall uh, as with a maximum sustained winds of about 125 miles an hour. Very, very strong. Uh, however, on the ground, we weren't feeling anything close to 125 miles an hour. The, the strongest gust uh, we, we estimated was probably between 65 and 75 miles an hour. Again, a very strong wind. Uh, anything that it blows into you, you know, it can cause damage. It'll down trees, especially with uh, ground that's, that's been soaked with a lot of rain in the hours leading up to the, uh, those types of winds. But again, nothing like the uh, what, what we were predicting, and definitely nothing that you would expect out of a Category 4 storm that Adalia was just hours before. And so in the aftermath of this storm, it was interesting because right now, uh, to date, in about a week after the storm, and I doubt anything new will come out in, in regards to this, the highest sustained wind on land that was recorded was uh, 85 miles an hour in Perry. So again, about, about 10 miles up the road from where, where I was sitting uh, during this, this time. And so Adalia, it seems, had really cratered from a storm with 160 mile an hour gusts, which is what was measured by a storm chaser, um, probably three hours before the hurricane made landfall. And that collapsed all the way down to a maximum wind measured 
on the coast of 85 miles an hour. So that's great news for the for the folks in Florida. Obviously, there's still a lot of damage. Uh, the storm surge was still really big, especially in places like Steenhatchee, uh, Horseshoe Beach, uh, all the way down even to Tampa area. You had um, a very large storm surge that washed across uh, Bayshore Boulevard down in Tampa. So the, the storm surge really ended up being, uh, from all of the damage that I've seen, uh, being the most impactful part of the storm because uh, the eyewall transformation process really weakened this storm a lot more than anybody expected it to. Again, this is great news for the people in Florida. Obviously not saying that there isn't a lot of uh, damage caused by the wind and rain and everything else, but it's not nearly as bad as it could have been. It's not nearly as bad as it was uh, when, with Hurricane Michael that hit a little bit further up the panhandle in Florida uh, just a couple of years ago. Um, so so the people of Florida were very lucky, and I was too, because, uh, again, had a Category 4 storm hit with where I was, uh, it could have been a lot more perilous situation. Um, and the storm continued on this track, and one of the good things about the, the specific storm is it was moving pretty quickly. And so you didn't have time to have a lot of buildup of rainfall in the area. Uh, the flooding inland wasn't nearly as bad. But it also did mean that maximum sustained winds were pushed a little bit further inland uh, than, than otherwise would have been expected. One of the other impactful aspects of this storm was that it landed during a supertide, um, which it contributed even in Charleston, as I'm sure uh, Elena has seen. The, the flooding <clears throat> excuse me, in Charleston was much more significant than people were expecting, in part because extra high tide, <clears throat> but also because this storm was moving so fast that it, it continued its power all the way across uh, Florida into Georgia and across into the Atlantic and, and started whipping up um, uh, tornadoes across South Carolina. And actually the, hot, the most rainfall recorded from this hurricane is in North Carolina. So the, the pathing of this hurricane really took a very uh, interesting approach to how it left its, its damaging effects. <clears throat> Nowhere in Florida really received more than six inches of rainfall from the storm, which is very unusual for a hurricane, particularly of this size and strength. Um, and up in North Carolina, you had rainfall of almost 12 inches. So with all that being said, you have um, a very strange uh, damage or, or path of destruction from this storm. Um, yesterday, when I went out to, to Horseshoe Beach, which almost took a direct hit, it's just down the coast from Keaton Beach and Steenachy, which were in the eye of the storm, um, to help survey, uh, see what the damage is, see what, um, the, what the locals need. I've been doing a fireworks show for the, the city of, of Horseshoe for the last 10 years with my family. So <clears throat> we have a lot of friends in the town. Uh, we have a deep connection there. And, you know, it was really sad to see whenever you, you know, you, you drive in and there's just what used to be houses are now just piles of rubble by, by the side of the road. There are, there's a, a pickup truck that was, that was half washed into the, an inland canal. Um, <clears throat> but for the, for the most part, uh, even on the coast, newer structures were able to weather the storm. Again, something that probably wouldn't have happened had they been hit with a Category 4 storm. Um, as, as we thought whenever this, in the, in the hour or two leading up to this storm making landfall. Um, we act, when we were out there, uh, one of the county commissioners out there in Dixie County was, was, uh, trying to do a fireworks show for, uh, the first responders and for those who stuck out the storm, the locals, uh, who were trying to, to build back because about two thirds of the town of Horseshoe had been pretty well, if not completely destroyed, but even very significantly damaged 
uh, homes, businesses, uh, between like the flooding, the storm surge, uh, and the wind obviously uh, wrecked a lot of havoc in the area. So Horseshoe, um, same, same, same issue in Cedar Key, which is a, um, a very more, to a more touristy uh, destination on, on the west coast of Florida. Uh, Steenhatchee probably had the highest storm surge um, of the area given its proximity to the eye wall. Um, and, and all of the coast, the coastline houses, uh, motels, hotels, Airbnbs, all of that were hit really, really hard uh, by the storm surge com in, co in combination with the wind. Uh, in, in Horseshoe, Steenhatchee area, it reached up to 10 feet. Uh, some, of the, some of the cameras that were ten, placed 10 feet above sea level um, were, were destroyed and you know, were washed away by the storm surge. So this was 100% a very damaging storm in the area. Um, but at the same time, you can't, can't help but feel a little bit, a little bit blessed that it, um, it could have been a lot worse. Um, when I was sitting at that gas station on US-19, about uh, 7.15 a.m., a couple uh, pulled up in a pickup truck. They were evacuating Steenhatchee that morning um, because two trees had fallen on their house uh, about an hour and a half uh, before in the middle of the hurricane. So, again, there's a lot of people affected by the storm. There's a lot of damaged property, and there's a lot of uh, lingering effects, and there's going to be a lot of people that are going to be, you know, recovering from the storm for the next next years, or the coming years. But... Um, Given the position, the Big Bend hasn't been hit by a major hurricane since the 1800s, um, which is amazing given its proximity to the Gulf Coast. But a lot of these people weren't necessarily prepared. Uh, a lot of the infrastructure had kind of lagged behind areas uh, in comparison to other areas on the Gulf Coast, like Louisiana, like Southwest Florida that was hit by Ian, um, like Miami, like Galveston, the Galveston area. All these other places had dealt with major hurricanes in the recent history and so all of their infrastructure was ready to handle it and that was one thing that i noticed touring these areas was that you had a lot of low-income areas you had a lot of outdated um, infrastructure from 30 40 50 60 years ago that just wasn't up to spec whenever it comes to dealing with a hurricane like Adalia. and so that definitely contributed to how damaging this storm was for the local population hopefully uh between the state of Florida and the federal government and federal response, uh, we'll be able to see everybody in that area get back on their feet uh, and hopefully in a little bit stronger situation whenever it comes to the infrastructure of the area. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's, it was definitely a wild ride. It was definitely um, not as not as bad as, as it could have been, but still, if you're standing there in 75 mile an hour winds, you're definitely going to Gonna, you're definitely going to reconsider what you're doing with your life. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, it, it was definitely an interesting experience, uh, and I, I'm going to definitely try and try and find some more storms to chase because it was definitely definitely an amazing experience just to to be in that position. So, did you rethink your life? Any interesting questions come up while you were in the eye of the hurricane? Uh, yes. Um, well, the first question was: Is is Biden going to be more responsive to this hurricane than he was to the train derailment in East Palestine? Um, and then the second one was, I really need a hot shower. Uh, standing out in, in freezing cold rain uh, for three hours uh, pre-dawn in 70 mile an hour winds is definitely, uh, definitely chills you to the bone. Well, we're so glad you made it back safely, um, even if it, it wasn't as many interesting stories as I was expecting to have. But I'd say it was pretty interesting Oh yeah, overall. It's definitely something I'd want to do again as well. You meet some interesting people out there. 
So are you going to uh, go for a career in storm chasing, maybe? Uh, I don't know if the demand is there, uh, but but if, if, if that's what the people want, uh, then I'd be happy to answer the call. All right, you heard it first. If you want Liam to become the next storm chaser, please email, share, comment, and let him know, because I kind of want to see what this turns out to be. <laughs> So now to another, possibly more dangerous storm, Hurricane Scout Motors in old Blyfoot, South Carolina. Scout Motors is picking up speed, and it's doing damage control, that's for sure. But before we get into the major part of it, let's go ahead and give a little background on Scout Motors. I know I've mentioned it before here previously, but I wanted to give a more extensive background into what it actually is. So Scout Motors is a startup of the car company uh, Volkswagen, a woke company who is the poster child for ESGs and green initiatives that just end up poisoning the communities they go into. Obtained by Palmetto State Watch through FOIA, we have learned that a large German newspaper, the Handelsblatt, uh, sent an email to the governor's office on October 20th, 2022, with its article featuring South Carolina and Scout Motors. This was two days before Governor McMaster's electric vehicle summit that he officialized his electric vehicle initiative through an executive order. That's a really interesting piece to all of this since the legislature and local residents of Blythewood didn't know about the Scout deal until it was rushed through in less than two weeks during March of 2023. The state legislators were not even given the contract, but instead a 10-page summary of praises from a USC professor of why Scout Motors needs to come to South Carolina. At, at the end of the day, Scout received $1.3 billion in state incentives and $400 million, with an M, $400 million in taxpayers' dollars in cash to move into the small town of Blythewood, South Carolina. A lot of that would also be going to soil stabilization because guess what? Blythewood is basically all sand. Sand that you're going to build an industrial, heavy industrial plant onto. I took a three-hour-long debate that happened on the House floor, consolidated it into major highlights, and attached it to my small-town takeover article that I wrote in March, and that will be linked in the description below. I strongly urge you to watch this video and see exactly what the Uniparty is doing to the few who speak truth into the endless pit of the establishment's dark wallets. A few House legislators did stand up and speak, and they were basically blacklisted for doing that by multiple uh, elected officials, Republican elected officials, around South Carolina. At one point, Minority Leader Representative Tom, uh, Todd Rutherford, a Democrat of Columbia, laughs at a member for listening to his constituents instead of a gigantic foreign entity that obviously knows what is best for South Carolinians. Watches Micah Kasky, a Republican out of Lexington, acts like a middle school bully who can only disagree with somebody by making fun of their voice. It's disgusting. Your legislators are showing you what they truly think of you on camera. So definitely check that out. That happened in March. But residents of Blyfoot didn't know until a small controlled meetings were held by the town in very small venues. When they asked questions, they were giving fluff answers that have yet to even come true. 
I attended the Blythewood Town Hall right after the bill was passed around March, I believe it was 23rd. No real answers were given, just that Scout would be all green redoing the town infrastructure and that everyone's housing prices would skyrocket because all of the Germans would be moving in to take the jobs. The main reason the main positive reason that uh, of Scout Motors that was repeated endlessly by McMaster, Graham, Tim Scott, the Speaker of the House, Merle Smith, the Mayor of Columbia, and multiple other major South Carolina officials from both sides of the aisle, uh, was that it was uh, that Scout Motors was going to be bringing four thousand jobs to South Carolina. Last month, Palmetto State Watch found out that the contract actually states that Scout will only produce 400 jobs and possibly 3,600 auxiliary jobs through other contracts, yada, yada, yada. So really, it's just 400 jobs. And that is what was told to South Carolinians so this bill could be shoved down their throats. Governor Henry McMaster has been one of Scout Motors' fiercest loyalists by stating that South Carolina, quote, is the perfect place to restart this iconic American brand, end quote. Why is the governor pushing for us to accept Scout Motors as an American brand that is clearly just a puppet of a German company? Well, Governor Henry McMaster is the co-chair of the National Governors Association Economic Development and Revitalization Task Force, which just happens to be partnered with the World Economic Forum. But let's continue on. Let's look into Volkswagen's history. And it's called Dieselgate. Last week, I wrote an article to give some background on the company of Volkswagen and the CEO of Scout Motors. I found that Volkswagen deliberately installed what they called defeat devices in over 11 million of its diesels vehicle, uh, diesel vehicles to cheat emissions tests globally since at least 2005, which was reported by a German newspaper. It is reported that these diesel vehicles were producing over 40 times higher than the federal limit of nitrogen dioxide in the air that is a common cause of lung cancer. The U.S. Department of Justice first sued Volkswagen on behalf of the EPA in 2016. Clifford Atia reported in 2019 that, quote, Volkswagen will now pay $14.7 billion to settle with three federal agencies suing the automaker for its excessive diesel emissions, the highest ever paid by a company for violations under the Clean Air Act, end quote. Eight executives from Volkswagen and Audi were charged with various crimes related to these cheat devices. Former Volkswagen CEO Martin Winterkorn was indicted in 2018 for fraud and conspiracy, but nothing really ever came of that because he never came to the United States. So let's take a look at one of the main players that seemed to rise to power seemingly unscathed from the scandal of Dieselgate. Scott Keough was president of Audi of America from 2012 to 2018 right in the middle of the Dieselgate scandal. All of a sudden, in 2018, Kia was made president and CEO of Volkswagen of America. In August of 2022, Scott Kia was made president and CEO of Scout Motors. 
In an interview with a local news station, WIS News 10, Don D. Mercer Plank as the news anchor, uh, Scott Keogh says normally these kind of deals take 12 to 18 months. But in South Carolina, he said it took less than 60 days plus over the holidays. Scott also said that he's never met a government, quote, so quick to say yes, end quote. But this isn't new to South Carolina. Former Governor Nikki Haley recently posted a video on her social media as she's campaigning for her presidential candidacy, where she brags about South Carolina bringing in more companies to the state than other companies because she made sure that they were unregulated. And you can see that in this clip here. We had to keep looking over at you because you kept stealing the businesses. We were, we trying were to, whipping y'all's butt. You were. We were whipping and y'all's butt. We had Republican governors who were like, here, we'll give you $50 billion. Come build in our state. And you're like, I will give you no regulation. Come. And people were coming. And Boeing and it, it just BMW, all of these massive businesses that went to South Carolina and didn't fundamentally change the culture of South Carolina when when they did. You you actually had people move into South Carolina and suddenly they're like, we actually like it here. We think we'll keep voting the same way. It was it's just remarkable your record in South Carolina to attract business without selling out the state to do it. Through what we are finding out right now, it seems that nothing has changed here, especially in the case of Scout Motors. But there's more to come on that later. For the past several months, Richland County Department of Economic Development, um, with the director being Jeff Rubel, has created a weekly social listening report that monitors what is said on social media by residents and elected officials about Scout Motors. They have created a blacklist of what they have do, uh, dubbed vocal opponents and their messages and posts on a local Facebook page dedicated to providing transparency and discussion on the project in Blythewood since the local government, the state, and Scout Motors have all refused to provide any information or any real discussion on it. Multiple residents and even a legislator has made many requests to see the site. Instead, residents are labeled as trespassers in the Richland County Economic Development Director Rupel bragged to the Department of Commerce in a email obtained through FOIA where he says, quote, FYI, check the Facebook page. We've got a House member involved now. Through an intermediary, he has asked for a tour of the site, but I shut that down quickly, end quote. So what's been happening so far? Scout Motors has treated their new neighbors terribly. Not only has Scout been burning incessantly near older communities that use assisted oxygen to breathe, they have refused to take phone calls or respond to numerous emails from the common residents and farmers of Blythewood that they are building right in their backyards. Well, they weren't answering up until about a week ago. They've even ignored buffers and demolitioning the property they have, which is currently over 1,600 acres of land, and how they got those acres, that will also come later as we continue our investigation. 
But they are ignoring those buffers on people's land and coming right up to the back of it. It's getting a little worrying. Um, a lot of people have even reported that there is black ash in their pools. They can't even swim in their pools because there's so much burning going on. Are they even allowed to burn? That's a great question. DHEC has not been able to give a straight answer. Sometimes they'll say yes. Sometimes they say, oh, that's against their contract. But nothing ever seems to happen. And if it does, it'll maybe stop for half a day and then continue. But let's look at what's been happening the past two weeks. It has been feeling like a deja vu of March all over again. The, with the way that Scout Motors and elected officials in Blythewood have been speeding up this process. Let's look at the most recent timeline. The most recent timeline starts on August 21st, when a special meeting was called last minute for the Town Council of Blythewood. Multiple members came to speak on related town concerns, including the project that Scout Motors started almost immediately in March in his continued very aggressively over the past several months. Um, over the past several months, residents again begged for Scout to return their calls and their emails and actually interact with them. This is at the August 21st meeting that was called last minute when Scout came in in March and it obviously has seemed to be planned at least since October. But let's go ahead and jump to the regular town council meeting on August 28th. This was the normally scheduled one. A flyer just happened to be on every seat in the room advertising individual meetings that Scout Motors had set up um, in a separate location in order for people to sign up and view a 3D model and get maybe five minutes worth of Q&A. 20 minutes into that meeting, council members went into executive session with their lawyers for over an hour. That's right. They didn't get back till like about 7.30 or around 7.30 at night and the meeting didn't end till 9.30. And during that hour, they were in there with their lawyers. They were allegedly discussing the stormwater system. Not sure if that has anything to do with the scout land. They do have a lot since they own 1,600 acres. Um, just like some wetlands and, and other things that I'll get into later. But for the first time at that meeting on August 28th, a Scout Motors representative was there and gave an introduction. She seemed pretty terrified, I'm not going to lie. Um, and she had just been hired, which is really interesting since the week before that, there was no representative and citizens and residents of the area, again, as they had been for several months, were demanding to speak with someone or anyone or have anyone answer their emails and phone calls from Scout Motors. So let's go to September 1st. September 1st was when I published my article, The Puppet Masters of Scout Motors, where I covered similar to what I just told you. On September 3rd, residents noticed a sign that was put out by the Blythewood Planning Commission for a meeting that was going to be held on Tuesday evening, um, which would have been, which is September 5th, to annex and rezone almost 500 acres of land from Richland County to the town of Blythewood. Where is this land, you may ask? Well, it just happens to be in the same area that Scout Motors 
it currently owns. You know, I wonder who's going to end up building on it. But we'll see what happens. Around the same time, town council member uh, and re relatives has started cozying up and trying to do favors for residents in the area that have been outspoken regarding to Scout Motors. I'm sure that they have no ulterior motives when it comes to that. But let's look at September 4th. That's when a ton of news reporters from local news stations started joining that local Facebook page. And September 5th, for the first time, the new scout representative started responding to emails from residents wanting to break bread and get to know them. Now, in her email, she did not answer any questions that were posed numerous times over several months, but she wants to get to know them on a deeper level. The town um, of Livewood has also tried to join the page as well. But I decided to do a little digging into this new rep a newly hired representative of Scout Motors that is the South Carolina liaison, apparently. Her name is Poonam Patel, who has a long history of working for woke hospitals in South Carolina. Her last job was working for MUSC, who has actively trained their staff to encourage transitioning and child mutilation. She previously worked on the governor's Accelerate SC board that was created during COVID and basically given unilateral power over South Carolina. Now, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, she's the South Carolina liaison for Scout Motors. But that's not all. There's also some interesting land dealings that have happened. How does Scout Motors get that 1,600 acres? Well, I'm not going to go into all of it because I'm still looking into it. But one of the parcels that they bought from the county was originally owned by a shell corporation called Saddlebrook. Saddlebrook bought this land for a couple of million, flipped it, rezoned it, and sold it for millions of dollars at an unusually high dollar amount, let's just say. Keep an eye on the Palmetto State Watch website and social media for an article on this soon that will be going deeper into it. So that's really what I have for now. There's been a lot going on tonight. I'm going to be going to that planning commission and we'll hopefully get some footage from that. Either we'll put it here or we'll continue putting it on Palmetto State Watch as we cover that story. Uh, but things are getting quite interesting in both the southeast as a whole i'd say yeah it's a little bit <clears throat> a little bit intimidating whenever you start seeing the collusion that can happen between private entities ngos local government state government uh and as they say money makes the world go round but once you start getting to the inner workings of it uh you definitely need to take a step back and and realize what you're dealing with yeah i always wonder you know who owned who was the shareholders of these shell corporations who is the one that are getting their pockets lined and you know a lot of times when you know a lot of information like that people will use it so mm -hmm. but you have to stick in it and hopefully use it for the better because if you don't someone else will well i mean just look at how uh diane feinstein nancy pelosi and everybody else in power uses the information that they have to make themselves hundreds of millions of dollars so and i 
And I love how people think it just stays in Congress. Oh, yeah. No, it, it happens at every level of government, uh, not, just, not just in Congress, but in the executive branch of the federal government at, at the state level, in state houses, for the state executives, all of them. They're, they're all doing the same thing. Probably not on as large a scale. They don't have as, as highly valuable information. But, you know, if the, if the opportunity comes along, they're, they're going to make a few million bucks, you know. And, and if you can use a shell corporation and sell some money to a private project at millions of dollars above asking, why not? Why not? Well, thank you so much for joining us today on the Magnifying Glass podcast. We delve deep, bringing the overlooked into focus and magnifying the stories that matter to you. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, rate, and share, helping us shine a light on even more discoveries. I'm your host, Elena Moore, and remember, sometimes the smallest details make the biggest difference. Until next time, keep looking closer.